Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops, and car stereos as loud as possible. Please be advised that this production could contain Broadway shows with overall financial losses, those with less than 250 performances, some that had no national tour after their initial Broadway engagement, and Broadway shows that never actually opened on Broadway. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. so much for tuning back into my favorite flop episode five um i think at one point christina this is all we were going to do uh but that's not the case this is this is five of many um today is march 2nd we are in march of 2021 holy uh, cow how did we get here i don't know honestly <laughs> i question that every single day um but march it's march my birthday is in two weeks um, Woohoo! Woo Happy birthday, Bobby. Oh, thank you. I mean, all right. So, Christina, uh, before we jump into everything, I think you might have some fun things to tell us about what you've been listening to this week, right? Yes. I've been listening to a couple of things. So, my husband challenged me to start working on Christine and Phantom again. Okay. Which I haven't really touched since I was probably in my early 20s. Um, and uh, so, so like that's three weeks funny. ago. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> um, so I'm now attempting that. But um, also, I have a six-month-old, seven-month-old now. Um, and uh, you, when you have a child, you think you're going to sing everything to them, right? Of course. Especially as a singer. Except the minute you go to sing to them, you're like, I don't know anything. Oh, I don't no. know anything anymore. I, it's out of my head. So I've been listening to a lot of Frank Sinatra so that way I can sing jazz to her. Okay. Because I end up scatting at her anyways. So, of course. Of course, because I just make up melodies. <laughs> so I've been listening to Frank Sinatra so I can remind myself of tunes <laughs> that I can hum to her to calm her down for nap times. Um, so that's what I've been listening to. What have you been listening to, Bobby? I have been listening to a show that... I sadly didn't see on Broadway, but I had a chance to. I was actually in New York uh, visiting um, when it was playing. But I've been listening to Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson uh, this last week. Yeah, Bloody nice. Bloody 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 Andrew Jackson, which I don't know if I understand how the show works because I've never seen the show. I've only listened to the cast recording, but. Uh, I think it's very timely. Uh, it's given me all sorts of vibes about the last four years in our country. Um, and rough, uh, just really great performances. I mean, especially um, by, you know, Benjamin Walker, who plays Andrew Jackson in the show. Uh, but I love it. And super, super sad uh, that the composer, Michael Friedman, passed away a couple years ago mm. uh, because... I've not only enjoyed Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, but some of the other shows that he's written. And uh, that'll actually, it's going to be a show that we do on this podcast one day, because sadly, For it sure. flopped on Broadway. Uh, but I think we might get a revival soon. Again, super timely. It was such a hit off Broadway, too, at the public theater. I mean, they rushed it to Broadway, and then it was kind of, which is so crazy, because that's kind of the theme of tonight's episode. It I know is. we haven't told people what our show is yet but same kind of thing rave reviews and then came to broadway and just it didn't end up lasting so yeah that's what i've been listening to so i guess it's time to do the clues for the week right it's totally time to do clues okay so we got to start with the clue we gave you at the end of the last episode we ready mm -hmm. this musical is based on a movie starring sarah jessica parker Sarah Jessica Parker, but she didn't star in this musical. She did not. <laughs> she does musicals. <laughs> she does. She's great. <laughs> All right. Clue number two that we put out on Twitter is that T.R. Knight from the TV show Grey's Anatomy starred in the original workshop of this musical. Oh, that was fun. Our third clue on Instagram, which was a visual clue, is quite possibly my favorite. Right. And that is, if you didn't guess it, five-year-old Bruno Mars. 
He may not have been five, but he looks five. In this, <laughs> and that's in from the movie. The movie that this musical is based on, which is so crazy. Uh, and that leads us to clue number four, uh, which we posted on Facebook, but it was a link to that blog post I wrote about uh 90s movies that have turned into broadway flops because believe it or not there's a ton of them and they're all kind of from the same year which is also funny we'll talk about that a little bit later yeah and that leads us to tony danza was part of the opening night cast of this musical okay so if you are a musical theater fan like if you didn't get anything up until this point, and I think we kind of went easy on you guys this week, Tony Danza's got to give it away because he's only done like two musicals. He's and... done more than one. I missed oh, that. He was in The Producers. You shut your mouth. He was in The Producers on Broadway and in Las Vegas. He I... Wow. He was in The Producers with David Hasselhoff. Christina, how did you <laughs> not know this? He was in The Producers with David Hasselhoff, they did the show together. Like, I wish I didn't see that production. Uh, I know people who were in that production. You do too. Alette Taylor was in Wasn't that... Larry Raven also in that? <laughs> yes. And Andy Taylor, Alette's husband, was in that. Oh uh, and gosh. Rich, who used to be my business partner, was also... He played Carmen Gia opposite David Hasselhoff as Roger Dupree. And then Tony Danza, I think, was Max Bialystok. Choices anyway, were made. Choices were made. So it's not the producers, it's the other musical he starred in, which is Drumroll. <laughs> Honeymoon in Vegas. Honeymoon in Vegas. Uh listeners, did any of you watch this show? Because please tell us if you did. Please tell us if you did, because it didn't run on Broadway for the longest time. But I this other than A Christmas Story, which I also saw, and that was our special preview episode, I actually was fortunate enough to see the show on Broadway. Did you see it, Christina? No, but my first introduction to the show was actually when you texted both myself and my husband and said, you both need to be in this show. Oh my gosh, you, <laughs> uh, you like... both would be fantastic starring in this. Like, Yeah, that so... was the first time I'd ever even heard of it. I hadn't even heard of the, of the movie prior to that i i had an either uh, honestly when i saw this show uh it was the talk of the town which we're going to get to uh but it was it it has a lot in common with those other musicals based on 90s movies and obviously it's that you and your husband steven need to star in them uh, all of them they're all <laughs> I, I feel like they're all prime opportunities for the both of you to star in musicals together uh but um you know it's quirky and it's a lot of fun and um sometimes they bleed together in my head a little bit uh which is why when we decided to talk about this musical on the podcast i had to make sure that i wasn't going back and remembering shows like dirty rotten scoundrels or leap of faith or the full monty or the wedding singer or the list goes on and on. So yeah, Honeymoon in Vegas, the musical, based on the 1992 film starring Nicolas Cage, Sarah Jessica Parker, we gave you guys that one. Uh, Christina's James, favorite, James Caan. Oh, James Caan. Uh, Mr. James Miyagi Khan. is in it. Um, Mr. Miyagi! <laughs> that's, it's Pat Morita, but uh, Mr. Miyagi is also in it. All right, so before we talk about the musical itself we should probably talk about the movie it's based on i went and watched it and i was confused as to why we thought it was going to like what what enticed people to make it a musical right because there are some movies you watch like wedding singer where you're like totally musical right. but even something like dirty rotten scoundrels which i actually really love and was very successful if you look at that movie you're like i don't really see musical Right at the end of this, but well, okay, and then and there, it turned out to be great. And there so are I was like, a lot of '90s movies that I say that, yeah. like I, I'm waiting for Death Becomes Her. I'm waiting oh for She gosh. Devil. I'm waiting for Hocus Pocus. I'm waiting for The Craft. I'm waiting for all of these things to happen. I know, but um, I, this movie, not so much. No, but what was interesting is, so this movie was nominated for two Golden Globes, two, <laughs> including Best Picture. Including Best Picture. And the other one was for Nicolas Cage for Best Actor, which I'm very confused by. 
So confused. And I enjoy him in some movies. I mean, Moonstruck is one of my favorite films. Him and Cher and their chemistry together is fantastic. I mean, Nicolas Cage has some wonderful movies out there. Maybe not his strongest film, Honeymoon in Vegas. No. But Golden Globe nomination. Sarah Jessica Parker is one of those people, though, who she can take any script at face value and personalize it, which right. is a skill that not every actor has. And I have a lot of admiration for the fact that she's able to do that. Right. She really is able to just look at it face value, point blank, and be like, I can make this real. And yeah, no, it. and she she's at the prime of her. She isn't Carrie Bradshaw yet. You know what I no. mean? Because every actor of a certain uh, level of fame, I think at some point they become a character of what made them famous, you know? Is and this now... before or after First Wives Club? <laughs> Another... 90s movie that that needs to be a musical no they did try they tried (laughs) they tried (laughs) um but i think this might have been before but she's great in it like she's totally lovable and i i buy her every step of the way and even james con i james con i think this is why tony danza makes sense in the role because james con and him own this sensibility of like you kind of just forgive their misogyny and their ego because they're so charming. I grew up on Who's the Boss that sure. I, I was obsessed with it because as we know, Christina didn't watch anything that was popular at the time of her childhood. She watched everything that was popular 20 years prior to that. But the funny thing is, is that the same year that this came out, a bunch of other movies that we have come to know and love in the musical theater world came out like Newsies. Right. League of Their Own, which needs to become a musical. They tra- they kind of did it at Rockwell, and it needs to like really become a thing. No, but Jason Robert Brown is adapting it. You who, who wrote this musical? We're gonna get to that, but yes. So oh my gosh, I'm, he's, I'm in love he's with it. he picked a good year to like. I don't know. He did well. And Sister Act came out of this year, so did Chaplin, oh, starring hi. the same guy. There you go. So, I'm just saying. But you also had things like Buffy and My Cousin Vinny, which is one of my favorites. That should be a musical, a musical. like. Friends. So many of these make more sense. Than I just want to play Marissa Tomei's part. Thank oh my gosh, so I would pay so much money. Okay, so we have talked a little bit about the movie, but we haven't told people what the movie's about. And I think oh, we right. need to do that, right? Yes. Um, it is the story of Nicolas Cage, he plays a guy named Jack, who I think is a private investigator, uh, which yes. is crazy because I don't think that that happens in the musical, which is smart because if he really was a pri- private investigator, I feel like the plot of this movie should be different. But he's a private yeah, investigator. It's not um, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's a school teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And they're in love with each other, but he weirdly doesn't want to get married m- with his mom, basically. Th- that he would never get married, right? Right, because then she dies immediately after. <laughs> right. And then uh, James Conn plays a mobster in Vegas. A g- loan shark, gambling guy. He's you know, that guy I know. The guy you call. Yeah, the um, guy you call. The guy you call. He's in Vegas. And so Nicolas Cage and Sarah Jessica Parker, they have names. <laughs> Jack and Betsy. They go to Vegas to get married because he's like, I'm, I'm just going to go against what I told my mother. And when they're walking into the hotel, which was fun because it's the Bally's and I, I park at Bally's. That's where I park when I go to Vegas. So it's really cool because it's centrally <laughs> located. Um, I was like, Bally's. That's my casino. That's my jam. Uh, they're at Bally's and they're walking through the lobby and James Can's character, uh, Tommy, um, he sees Sarah Jessica Parker's character, Betsy, and it reminds him of his ex-wife, right? Yes. Who? And there's this great throwback scene of Sarah Jessica Parker dressed as his wife. Right. But it's sad because his wife died of sun cancer. There's an entire song about it in the musical. Yes. And so so he sees Sarah Jessica Parker and is like, oh, she reminds me of my ex-wife. I'm going to invite her husband to play poker with me and my friends and he's going to lose all this money. And then I'm going to tell him, well, I'll forgive the debt if I can spend a weekend with your wife. This this show is extremely misogynistic. There's a lot of misogyny and it's ironic that this was the one that they decided to bring to the forefront in what was it 2014 2015 when this show came out it officially opened in 2015 um he started working on it before that but yeah but in 1992 you know people 
love to be a misogynist. <laughs> well, and in it was a simpler time in 1992. And I don't mean to say that as um, that the Me Too movement isn't important and that it shouldn't have happened earlier. That's not what I'm saying. But right. it was a simpler time in that people were more forgiving. They recognized that this was something really silly and over the top and ridiculous. And it was a it was a good time movie, so to speak. Uh, but again, not the most popular movie, even though it got nominated for stuff. I think it cost twenty five million dollars to produce and it only, yeah, made, only made 35 back, which if you know, like Hollywood you know, standards, you essentially have to make three times the budget globally in order to officially say that your movie made it to was money successful. Back. Yeah. And so this obviously didn't qualify for that. Critics were mixed, mixed to positive. Uh, I think it still has um, about a 70% rating on Rotten Tomato from the critics. But the audience score, which you could, you know, you could write a review today, it's like 39% now. So people <laughs> clearly have weighed in um retrospectively on their thoughts on honeymoon in vegas um but anyway yeah this movie happened in 1992 i didn't grow up watching it like i did other movies that year um but the director writer andrew bergman uh apparently when he finished making the movie he thought to himself man that would have made a really good musical and, and so did jason robert brown and so did jason robert brown so uh at some point, they hooked up. Uh, Jason wrote a couple songs on spec to show him, like, I'm the one to do this. And he's like, yes, you are. Uh, Andrew Bergman, who wrote the script of the film and directed it, also wrote the book to the musical. Um, and in around 2011, they started workshopping it, right? Yeah, um, they started workshopping it, which is when T.R. Knight was a part of it. Um, and, Playing the uh, Nicolas Cage character role. I would never yes. cast the two of them. Well, in, to be fair, I think Nicolas Cage was miscast in the film. So right. going in the direction of someone like T.R. Knight makes sense to me. And then ultimately to Rob McClure. Oh, 100%. Um, well, and, the, and that was one of the things they changed. A lot of the musical is similar to the film, uh, especially with the book writer being the original screenwriter and director. Uh, but they made some big changes. He is not a private investigator. He no, is a nebbish choice. Yes. He is a nebbishly nervous man, uh, which makes all the sense for T.R. Knight and uh, Rob McClure eventually to play him. Um, Betsy's character, I think, is a little bit more feministic in the show, but uh, Tony Danza's Tony Danza's character as Tommy is very similar to what it is in the movie. Oh yeah, no, mm -hmm. he was the right choice. The thing about Tony Danza is that I think that I don't, I'm not completely sure on how he came to be a part of the production, but he didn't have the same kind of box office pull that I think they were expecting him to have. Right. And I think I think he was one of the producers. Um, I don't think I he mean, does it. Makes sense. Yeah. Does I think it's under um his company's name. So I don't think he is by Tony Danza presents Tony Danza. In. <laughs> um, but I, I do think he is silently one of the show's producers. He was involved in those early workshops. Uh, yeah. So it that's actually interesting is that they didn't get him to be like, who's the boss is Tony Danza. Let's put him just for the Broadway production because we want to sell tickets. He helped develop the show, which is kind of cool yeah um, i mean honestly i was i didn't realize that tony danza could sing until i listened to this and tap dance and tap dance that man is actually really really talented tap um, dance i was really shocked because when i first listened to it at one point i thought it was the guy who played the dad in catch me if you can and i was like oh. wait is this no it's tony Danza. wait what <laughs> Tony Danza. It's Tony Danza. So they did these workshops with T.R. Knight and Tony Danza. Uh, and then it was supposed to open in Canada and that got canceled, right? Yeah. It was supposed and to so open in to Paper Mill. And they took it to Paper Mill. And the show, by that point, T.R. Knight was gone and uh, replaced with Rob McClure. Um, it's Bryn O'Malley, right? Who plays Betsy mm -hmm. in that production. Uh, one of my favorites, Nancy Opal, plays the mom. Um, She's which, fantastic. Which, of course, that character changes. Instead of dying at the end, she is present throughout the entire show. Which is so interesting to me because there are lyrics in I Love Betsy about his mom being dead. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, she shows up throughout the entire musical. But and she is one I've of the best is that parts. It says the mom is alive. Like, 
I, I, I don't didn't see it, so I, I, don't I honestly know. don't remember. What was really charming about it, and I think the thing that everyone talked about in the reviews is the score, which harkens back to the golden age. It really kind of lives in this 60s, 70s uh, throwback kind of world as well. And it doesn't sound like Jason Robert Brown. In fact, it, it really reminds me Not of David Yazbek a lot. Yeah. A lot. That's who I thought it was when I just started openly listening to it. And the score was interesting to me because having I did the regional premiere of Catch Me, right? And there were moments where I almost started sing, singing Catch Me lyrics mm. rather than because obviously I, I don't know Honeymoon in Vegas as well. Um, but it, it was interesting listening to it. I also found what was really interesting to me about the score is that Betsy is a huge focal point in the show, right? Like There's songs that say Betsy she, in the title. Like Yeah, she is the reason all of this happens. Right. But she only gets one real song and it's anywhere but here. That's, I believe. Yeah. And then her big um, song in Act One is Betsy's Getting Married, which is a lot of fun, but Right, but she doesn't finish the song. Right. I believe it's finished by Rob McClure. And so she doesn't actually ever finish that song. And it also is a completely different sound to Anywhere But Here. Like in that song, I'm like, oh, you're you sound like a younger version of the mom. And then like all of a sudden we get to her big moment of like indecision with this wonderful song Anywhere But Here. And all of a sudden I'm taken to like contemporary soprano, almost um very ingenue right and i'm like this isn't the same character because in a show yeah. you want you want the character to always sound the same right right like the the musicality should follow throughout the show and well, it doesn't for her and then her yeah. other her other one is when they're actually getting married and again she doesn't finish the song right she doesn't really get much in way of the score You know, I feel similar about the movie, too. You know, I was going to say that when we were going through the plot. Sarah Jessica Parker does a fine job in the movie. And obviously, you know, seedings of how she ended up becoming Carrie Bradshaw, this huge TV star HBO. The character doesn't give her a lot to work with. You know, in the film, Sarah Jessica doesn't have a lot to work with. The character is so integral to the plot that's trying to be told. But the character doesn't really get to... Inter- interact and interject and have an opinion and mm. for something so it's the story of this man who basically bets his wife uh you know in a poker game and loses his wife um yeah it's it's weird and especially for the musical version to not address that better you know at least on the song front that's i think it's fascinating to to break it down like that she gets one song to herself. The men's songs are really fun. Like, I Love Betsy is really fun. And I found a bunch of different people singing it. I also found, like, Rob McClure doing it at 54 Below as part of his one-man show. Oh, and wow. it was interesting because he was talking about how excited he was to do Honeymoon in Vegas. Oh, really? Yeah. He related it to when he was a kid listening to musicals. And just idolizing people who got to be on a Broadway recording. And then this was his first time getting to be on an original Broadway cast recording. And he was going to get to be that sound for some random kid. Right. Which is so heartfelt and wonderful and something I think we all strive for is getting to inspire a younger version of ourselves. Right. Everybody loves doing that song. And the lyrics are actually really clever and fun. And I mean, Jason Robert Brown is a great lyricist. Right. Um, but Once, yeah, it, it was just interesting to me that, and I love Tony Danza's song about his wife dying of <laughs> melanoma. I know that sounds terrible, but it's a really funny song. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, so okay, two, two things. Uh, you mentioned the, the cleverness of the lyrics in I Love Betsy. I So there was this epic, and it was right before I left New York, uh, before the pandemic started, uh, this epic Sondheim and Jason Robert Brown concert at, uh, I think it was Town Hall. And Katrina Lank was like their special performer. And uh, oh, okay. me and our mutual friend, Julie, um, we we were like, we don't care what it costs. We bought tickets. They were very expensive. <laughs> and we're there. And Jason Robert Brown talks told this story about how um, Sondheim had reached out to him after, you know, hearing the song. I don't know if he'd seen the show or, or what it was. I don't remember exactly where Sondheim had 
heard it for this story, but uh, he was like, it's it's one of my favorite songs. And so Jason, I think, performed it himself. I, I'm not I don't remember. Rob might have actually been there that night because there were guest performers, but it was performed as part of the evening. Uh, and it was this really cute moment because they're sharing the stage. And Jason Robert Brown, he has this series where he invites people to perform with them. So he invited Sondheim and it was this big deal because obviously hello to legends and hello. jason r brown looks up to him so much uh to hear the story well, of a t- in our after the bows we learned how they met each other right like with cortez which <laughs> with is cortez. crazy like so it, it was really kind of cool to see somebody who you know worships and idolizes and respects sondheim so much have that turnaround moment with a mm. song that i think is really fantastic um, i love really betsy fantastic. i love the song i would sing the song i mean like i can understand why it's in guys books that makes me think of other shows because i don't know why um but it makes me think of big fish which you obviously <gasps> yes. were in the west coast premiere of that and it will be an episode of this podcast one day but i always oh, so like i always get confused with honeymoon in vegas because i remember i love betsy and i don't know why but i'm always like oh it's bobby stager it's big fish but no it is rob mcclure and it is honeymoon in vegas yeah Um, there's some reminiscence of that i guess um from the dad character when he's doing his his story times um i guess that makes sense yeah i could hear that like i said i kept hearing catch me if you can and i kept hearing dirty rotten scoundrels in the score i mean what great yeah. yeah, what great things to pull from. I mean, they're, those scores are fantastic. So it makes sense. But and and they definitely what they did was they tried to take the film, and I I think that this comes from Bergman being a musical theater fan, obviously, right? Because right. he was so convinced that this could make a great musical, and then taking that and saying, okay, so I understand what the structure needs to be for a musical and then trying to fit it into an existing structure instead of just setting out to tell a good story. I think that's part of the issue with the translation between the film to stage. Right. And so we kind of touched on that um, when we talked about a Christmas story, right? Which you can listen to if you go back and see our episodes. Right. It's our bonus episode. <laughs> but yeah, we kind of touched it on there. You can, when you adapt uh, a movie to the stage, you know, you're going to make a musical about it. There are two ways that you can do it, and it's not always successful, regardless of which way you do it. But you could do a literal adaptation where it's like a Christmas story. We're going to take the most famous lines. You sh- you'll shoot your eye out. We're going to turn that into a song. Or you can take something like Little Shop of Horrors and you take the movie, the idea of the movie, the plot of the movie, but you make it its own thing. I mean, the the stage version of Little Shop is so incredibly different than the movie it's based on. Again, they're the same, but they are very different. Uh, And this show, this show, I think, lives in a weird world in between, you know? Yeah, it didn't quite find its uniqueness. Yeah, it, it kept some things that are super... Like the Elvis is jumping out of a plane. <laughs> I mean, the Elvis is jumping out of a plane. That that happens in this musical, just like it does in the movie. But then, you know, there's the Elvis competition that also happens in the movie. And I can't help but think this is a musical. You know what I mean? Right. Like, wouldn't that be a better climax to have him compete to make it more stage bound? You know what I mean? Yeah. Not that it wasn't enjoyable to watch these Elvises jumping on a plane on stage in the musical. But I just, I, I think to myself, maybe, maybe there were ways that it could have made more sense. You know what I mean? To really yeah. embrace the, the theatricality of it all. Yeah. And it's like that year on Broadway, we haven't talked about what else it was competing with either. Right. So there were some epic shows that came out in 2015. We had stuff like Hamilton, Coming Out, Finding Neverland, Color Purple Revival, School of Rock, The Fiddler Revival, um, Allegiance, Something Rotten, like all of these incredible shows. That season was absurd. Crazy. It was absurd. And I actually saw most of them that year because we were in New York and that's when we got engaged (laughs) in Central Park. Um, And uh, so, yeah, it was competing. And it was also the year of the play. Oh, yeah. There were some epics that came out that year. You had View from a Bridge, which was incredible. I saw it. But also, ironically, Tony Danza made his Broadway debut back in the 90s doing A View Wait, from a Bridge. Wait, did he really? Yeah, he did. Oh and then <laughs> he did The Iceman Cometh, 
I mean, who knew? I didn't. Wait, he did these plays on Broadway? He did both of them on Broadway. Okay, I knew he did the producers, but I didn't know he did serious stuff. That's. But you also had things like Wolf Hall, which I know you saw. God bless <laughs> all you. All the parts. All of them. Old Times, which we saw together. And I oh, love that. The yes. Pinter play. Uh, Hand of God, which was a huge hit. And oh, my who gosh. Who can forget that poor audience member going on stage to plug in his iPhone. <laughs> to plug into the, oh, Hand of God is actually one of the most, uh, did we see it together? I didn't get to see it. Oh my, one of, You must uh, just, have seen that one with Julie or somebody else. No, it must have been with my friend Leanne because she's a puppeteer. It, it's one of the most, um, it's just, it was great. It's great. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it was a fan, for someone like me, it was a fantastic experience in theory. But you're right, the year of the play, so many fantastic plays. There were so many great musicals. But despite that, this came to Broadway with rave reviews. Like, this was highly anticipated. I think the fact that this show failed surprised a lot of people. It, it surprised well, Ben Brantley. it was Brantley. in January of 2015, wasn't it? So it was before a lot of these other shows opened. So January, and you know what theater it played at, right? No. The Nederlander. Now, Ooh. the Nederlander is famous. It's where Rent played for the longest time. Mm. But... I have a personal opinion. I think, you know, some people might agree with me. I, I, I think it's a scare. It's not one of the most, um, it's not a prime piece of real estate because the Nederlander is on 41st Street. So it's one block south of where Times Square really begins. And if you don't, it doesn't get a lot of tourist traffic because mm. tourist traffic really starts on 42nd Street and goes up into the 50s. Right. That 41st Street, like some bars, there's some like, textile clothing things uh there's a lot less which or maybe that's on 40 40th street um there's <laughs> i go down to 41st street but I, you know as someone who worked in times square 41st street was a nice little break from the tourist crowds that's not great if you're trying to do a commercial show yeah, on broadway you're trying to sell a show and um a lot of shows since the, the original production of rent clothes there have have flopped so i yeah. think that definitely didn't help the fact that it opened in january at a theater that didn't get a lot of street traffic you know uh yeah, from tourists it's hard it's hard to sell a show in january especially when that's when it's opening that's it's hard enough for shows that are been running right to get through that slump after the holidays and it's i know that couple of weeks slump that happens so I'm just going to conjecture, but it, I was living there and it was around the time that we had some years that we were like Snowmageddon or oh, we had yeah. these crazy, you know, nor'easters. And we also had some other crazy current events happening. Like that was when a bunch of mass shootings were happening. The attacks in Paris, the um, primaries, the primaries. To yeah, the Trump enters the race. Oh. Here we are. Um, but it was also the same year that gay marriage was legalized nationally. And millennials surpassed baby boomers that year in the largest as being well, the largest generation. And I think that speaks to it. You know, speaking of millennials, you know, you have Hamilton opening off Broadway, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which I think has been embraced by people of all ages. But I think in the early days, it was a lot of young educated uh, people in the city who were discovering it at the public because those that's the kind of audience that you know well by 2015 it was it had opened on broadway did it really I saw it. yeah oh wow, i won okay. i was one of the few people who won the lottery i remember ten dollar front row seats i remember that oh my gosh well so hamilton you have that and like both of us have said, you know, both of us proud millennials, I, I didn't grow up watching this movie. So it's mm -hmm. not like it's not like we're going to turn Frozen into a Broadway musical. Right. It's a movie that it's like, oh, if you weren't told that it was a movie that it was based on, I don't know if some people would have even known. OK, so on that point, going back to looking at some of these shows from 2015, we had a lot of movie to musicals. We had Finding right. Neverland. We had Color Purple, School of Rock. You you even had something like Gigi, which was right. was a flop. We had all of these. And then even going into 2016, we had Tuck Everlasting and Waitress. So why do we think that a movie, this didn't translate as well, right? Like all these other movie musicals and a chunk of those besides Gigi and Tuck Everlasting were actually super popular. Even American in Paris, that... <laughs> that ran forever. American in Paris was the unexpected show, and I actually really enjoyed it. I did too. Uh, and I wasn't expecting to. I I got I got comps to that, and I was like, well, I'm gonna watch this show. And I was like, oh, that was enjoyable. Um, uh, 
We went and watched it the night we got engaged. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's a good show to do the night you get engaged. Well, uh, and it was because it's the movie that made me want to do musical theater when I was a kid. Well, that that makes even more sense. And to get to see, uh, it was Robert Fairchild, right? Yes. Oh, my it was God. Stunning. No, I used to always tell people, like, look at Little Shop. It's so successful because he took a movie that what that not everybody knew. And it wasn't, you know, this big blockbuster hit movie. And he was able to do whatever he wanted with it. No, you it was know, a when cool you classic. But called classic, but it wasn't like every, you know, Joe Schmo down the street knew what Little Shop of Horrors was before he turned it into a musical. So it gave him, gave Howard Ashman and, and the rest of the team artistic license to adapt it. Whereas if you take an incredibly popular movie people go in with those expectations. They want right. to hear you'll shoot your eye out as a song, <laughs> either genuinely or because they're like, yeah, you're going to turn that one into a song, aren't you? Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because School of Rock came out that year, right? Which is the movie is so iconic to Jack Black. But I tell you what, I saw it and Alex Brightman makes it his own and it is so lovable. And those kids were so stupidly talented. It wasn't even funny. Yeah. But like that was so successful, even though it was reminiscent of the movie, but they made it their own. Well, that's what I was about to say is it blows my theory out of the water, because according to my theory, Honeymoon in Vegas, that's the one you should turn into a musical. Uh, and School of Rock, wildly popular movie, iconic performance by the star of the film. I don't know, because you really can't predict it because Waitress ended up being so popular. And so did Kinky Boots. Beautiful, and yeah. those totally prove my theory right. Take indie films that not a lot of people have seen, and it gives you the artistic license. But maybe which is funny because I actually saw Kinky Boots, the movie Kinky Boots, long before I ever knew about the musical. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Um, because my husband's obsessed with it. Of course, he's English, so of course he's obsessed right. with it. But um, he was like, "I love this movie. You should watch it." I was like, "Okay," and I fell in love with it. It was just so good, and so many actors came out of that film. Oh my now gosh. Have massive careers. Oh my goodness. Massive. Like, and you would like this indie film from the UK. Like, yeah. And it is uh, shot like an indie film. Like it's it's down and dirty. It is well, not glitzy at all. Yeah. And waitress the same thing. So I, I don't know if you can predict it. I don't know if that theory holds true that I have, that it needs to be, you know, a more obscure film. Well, I think, I think a big part of it is passion project, right? Right. We've talked about we talked about this with Taboo. We've seen it ourselves. Um, I, I've been a part of passion projects. When a passion project is too important to the person that's creating it. Right. To the point where they can't take a step back and look at it objectively or have someone they trust to look at it objectively. Right. They tend to get in, in their own way with it. Right. Especially when people have resumes, I think definitely. Um, yeah, but you, yes, and passion projects also give us great things. Like, Flora the Red Menace gave us Liza, right? Without it, we may not have gotten her. Evita just gave us Evita. Exactly. Leap of Faith gave us Leslie Odom Jr. That, okay, I will give you, I will give you. That man. I mean, I enjoy oh. the music. Um. Yeah, it's really hard to pinpoint because you can go two ways with with adapting these movies. You can go super literal. Famous lines from the movie become musical numbers or you can adapt it. But then sometimes you can go too far. It's really not a science like um, mm -hmm. Full Monty, which I know is really popular in the regional market. And I think it was moderately successful on Broadway. Uh, it's not like something that played for a decade or anything. Right. And I know people who are big fans of the movie. It's this indie film. Uh, you know, about these, they're steel workers, right? Uh, yes. In the UK. And then they reset it in the United States. And it, it's in it, Sheffield, yeah. I don't know if it works as an American musical. And I don't know if 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 we get it revived. I don't know. There's something weird about it being set in the United States. The only time I feel like it's ever worked to reset something into the United States that was originally set in the UK, and it, it's not popular, the movie flopped, uh, is the movie version of Noises Off, which is one of my favorite things on the planet. But I think the reason it works is, you know, they're doing it with American film stars. They accept, warts and all, that these accents are going to be all over the place. So what they've done, it's an American troupe putting on this 
really bad British play so they can have like Carol Burnett can have an awful British accent. Christopher Reeve can, you know, have this awful accent. Uh, but they went so far to adapt that screenplay to make the references make sense for an American theater community. So they adapted the script, but it made sense in that. I mean, Fulmonti does really well regionally. And I think a big part of that is you get your local actors that people come to see and you get to see them naked right like <laughs> oh the, the red hats they, they I, I so when i when i worked at sonora sierra rep uh they had done it rather recently and and there were just horror stories from the cast that they were they were waiting for the lighting effect because there's a famous lighting effect that you can't see anything but people there's this lore like sometimes the lighting effect doesn't work or sometimes it's late and yeah these, the red the, the red hat ladies all about it but that's the thing uh, right like it gets them coming back you have you have certain regional houses where the same actor or actress um people come to see them do it like when i worked down at moonlight i when i did um matilda down there everyone came to see randall hickman play trunchbull because right. it was that was the right. show he was doing that year same with bets malone you know the minute uh, it's sally struthers sally like, struthers. i mean she's she has built such a name in the regional theater market i'm sure people not only because she was on all in the family but because she does so much theater now they i'm sure they chase her oh yeah when i did nice work at ogunquit people came because it was sally in it yeah and she would stop the show yeah you know and that's that's a big part of it i don't know that honeymoon in vegas offers that well the biggest song is you know i love betsy and we talked about the show having raves one review and i forget what newspaper it was in said based on the out-of-town tryout and I, I didn't go back to read if they had changed their mind for broadway it said this show is so fantastic the score is great love the show what it's missing is that iconic song and i think they were referring to it as far as uh, the Tony Danza character, you know, the Tommy character in the show. Um, I think that if that part had a song that had become a hit from Honeymoon in Vegas, I think maybe it would be bigger in the regional market. The rights are available. I actually checked because uh, I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, um, MTG did it here. Oh, did they really? As, as a reading. Yeah, yeah. well, because when it after it flopped on Broadway, it was supposed to go on a national tour starring Tony Danza again. Uh, he was going to be ahead on the national tour and it never happened. They announced it, but it never ended up happening. And I know that there mm -hmm. was talk for a long time that people didn't know if the rights were going to get released, but I didn't know that MTG did it. That's really cool. MTG did it, I think, in their season right before the pandemic. Oh, okay. Hit. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I'd be interested to see if people choose to do it regionally. I mean, it has the Elvis I, thing going on, but like I said, they're jumping out of a plane. Like if there was really this opportunity for either one Elvis, you know what I mean? If that was like, well, he does. One Elvis does have a song, but he I can't tell. I can't tell because I didn't see it, but it kind of sounds like he's supposed to be a bad Elvis impersonator. OK, I don't I don't remember. I just remember them jumping out of a plane <laughs> like and there was like jump, 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 but jump. There was a song. There was. And then he screams. Rob McClure screams. Uh, there's a song. But yeah, it's not. And I, and I feel like we already have that Elvis market fulfilled with Bye Bye Birdie, right? If you have a youngish Elvis mm -hmm. in the community, you're going to do Bye Bye Birdie, right? Like, Or you're going to do Million Dollar Quartet. Oh, yeah. If you're going to go serious. Especially like with this COVID situation. Well, you've only got four people on there, stage. There's going to be a lot of productions of Million Dollar Quartet next year uh, because of four people. Yeah. And I think... I mean, maybe if you're a regional house, like we were talking about with Sally Struthers, where she she's brilliant, but she's also, to a certain extent, a stunt cast, right? right? You know you're going to bring in um, a certain amount of audience because right. of her. Um, and maybe if you're a regional house that has a stunt cast like right. that, maybe who could step into the Tommy role or who could step into... Well, the well, Sally could play the mother and she would be fantastic. I mean, Nancy Opal. Yeah, but she doesn't have much to do. In Nancy the show. Opal stole the show, though, with that that she one did. song, like where the jewelry counters open up and she's there. <laughs> like, I just iconically <laughs> remember it. And I'm I'm obsessed with Nancy Opal. So uh, someone like Sally would be good, but I don't know if it's enough. I agree. Like, I don't know if it's enough. Like, come see yeah. Sally Struthers do this, you know? Now, obviously, this show had some issues, right. some problems, 
But one thing that you and I can definitely agree on is Jason Robert Brown's score and how fantastic it is. Oh, 100%. We're probably going to talk about him a couple of times on this podcast with Parade and Bridges. Right. But that doesn't speak to his clarity and specificity when he writes scores for these shows and his ability to honor the musical comedy right. genre. Well, it, it's a very much a traditional book musical. And I won't get more into Bridges because that is absolutely going to be a future episode of this show. Yes. Uh, but very different scores. In fact, when I look at the palette of Jason Robert Brown's work, you know, Songs for a New World, uh, Into Parade, uh, things like 13, This, Bridges of Madison County, they are very different, very, very different, different. Uh, musically, very different lyrically. Uh, and for a man who, you know, looked up to Mr. Stephen Sondheim, uh, you know, got to work with Hal Prince uh, and things like that early in his career. So kind of got to be shaped by the same people who helped shape the legends. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. He has such a diverse palette. Well, and of course, he, you know, I, I mean, he essentially at one point wanted to be like Billy Joel, you know, singer songwriter. And, and that's oh, that's why he right. does all these concerts. In addition to composing for Broadway, he does these concerts where he invites performers to perform his work with him. He performs so much of his own material. And um, yeah, he's a jobbing musician. It's very similar to like what Elton John oh, does, like his his mindset of I'm a jobbing musician. Let me music direct for you. Let me jump on and just play for the well, show and he's worked he's worked in that facet in this industry too i mean he's worked as a musical director he's worked as a, an arranger he's done orchestrations like uh fun fact and I, there's just not enough out there to ever do it on this podcast but when charles strauss was writing uh star wars musical in the 1980s jason whoa jason robert brown did all of the arrangements to that so if you he any comments on Get stuff it, oh my robert gosh brown. he comments on youtube and so if you find those on youtube he talks to people but yeah, and he gets so many people who want to work with him. You know, Shoshana Bean is in concert with him all the time. They do the last five years together. You know, the two of them. I love that. You know, he plays Jamie. She plays uh, Kathy. Ariana Grande, who people don't even remember. She was in 13 on Broadway. Right. Well, and the two of them did that concert in December oh, gosh. as part of COVID. Oh, what was it? It was called like coming in from inside the house, right? Something like that. Yeah. Which is still available. Go search. Check it out. Oh, and right before the pandemic, Shoshana, as a gift to him, did um, Songs for a New World uh, at City Center at um, Encores. Oh, I bet she was great. But yeah, he does these concerts. In fact, um, please check it out because not only is the music that he's written for the stage fantastic, just his pop stuff is awesome as well. No, he's one of those guys who loves musical theater. He loves music and he finds every which way to be a part of it. And I and I actually have a lot of admiration for that. Right. And that makes me sad that this show wasn't more successful. You know what I mean? Because he has tried so hard to write a big, fat hit on Broadway. And I feel like... Look, if he's working on a league of their own, first of all, Jason Robert Brown, I'd love to be in it. Because like, you need to play Kit. Like, I would love you to need play to, Kit. Thank you You need to play much. Kit tomorrow. That's my jam. Um, but I mean, I think something like a league of their own, especially like you just spoke about the palette at which of which he paints right. with, I think that there could be a lot in there. And I really hope, I really hope and pray that there's an entire song dedicated to there's no crying in baseball. See, it's one of those things. Is he going to go with, uh, we're going to take the iconic line from the movie and turn it into a song or is he going to go more subtle with it? We don't know. We don't know. But again, that's another movie to musical. And I think that there there is room for that. I'm not saying that that's a bad idea. I think it's a great right. idea. Right. But I really hope it brings him that success that I know all of us right. are on his side. Well, look, I think that of the movie movie to musical transfers that he's done, because Bridges was one, uh, Honeymoon in Vegas was one. I think A League of Their Own has the most legs. And I think it's because of the millennial mm. factor. You know what I mean? Um, I think yep, that was one that we all, we grew, all grew up with. with. People love it. They quote it. It means a lot to a lot of people. It is a title that I know that it's that people will come to A League of Their Own, their musical based on the title of itself. I mean, the Rockwell production did 
stupid. Right. Well. And so I think that ultimately, you know, one of the biggest things Honeymoon in Vegas had going against it is it's just not the most popular movie on the planet. And so without that breakout song that's being sung everywhere, that, you know, breakout star, Tony Danza, yes, famous TV star, whatever. But uh, it just Honeymoon in Vegas, it wasn't the wedding singer, you know, which that didn't even do well. Right. But it wasn't the title alone wasn't going to sell it on Broadway. And I do think that um, sometimes you need that, you know, sometimes you have to have we're talking millions of dollars to produce a show on Broadway. Yeah. And um, and sadly, yeah, reviews alone aren't enough. And this show had some of the best reviews you could see. Well, that's our show, that's everybody. Our show. Thank you so much for listening. That's our show. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for listening. And um, if you are listening, uh, we do want to remind you to head on over to Apple Podcasts and to write us a five-star review. And if you really like us, subscribe so that that way, every week when you turn on, or every two weeks, uh, when you turn on your phone or Apple Podcasts listening device, uh, you get that episode automatically. My favorite flop. Automatically. <laughs> Be sure to check out After the Bows next week. Who knows who we're going to get as a guest for this episode. I'm so excited. You're going to have to stay tuned to find out. I mean, we've already had some some pretty amazing conversations with people like Cortez Alexander and James Oh, my Tweed. gosh. I mean, And we, we have all sorts of people on After the Bows. Sometimes they're former cast members, like the two of them. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they're super, super fans. fans. Sometimes they're members of the creative team. Uh, sometimes it's our mom. It really kind of depends on who we can find. Uh, but we've got an exciting guest for you next week, and you're going to have to stay tuned to find out who they are. Um, Yes, be sure to check us out on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, all of them, because that's also where you're going to find our clues, friends. All the clues. All of them. You better give us our first one, Bobby. Okay. For next episode. All right. Clue number one for episode six is this. This musical takes place in Santa Rosa, California. Did you guess it? Did you guess it? <laughs> I doubt it. Nothing takes place in Santa Rosa, California. Wine takes place in Santa Rosa, California. Okay, that's true. And horseback riding, too. But I, I, musicals don't normally take place in Santa Rosa, <laughs> California. All right. Uh, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, make sure to tune in two weeks, okay? And also don't miss After the After Bows. After the Bows! Remember, let that freak flag fly. But at home, wear a mask. Bye! Bye.